I'm going to ask you to take a minute and think with me about the events that have happened in your life up to this point, uh, especially when it comes to things that you would say if we, we had a piece of paper uh, and we drew a line across it and we said, these are high points in my life or low points in my life. Uh, some of you have done this exercise. We often call it like a life map exercise. And, and you, might, you might look at that chart. For some of you, are like, I only need an index card, right? Because and for some of you, you need one of those architectural drawing pages, right? To chart out your life, right? And, and if you could look back on some of those events, I, I can think of moments in my life that literally changed the course of my life. One of them was the fact that while I was a Bible student at Cedarville University, a couple, three hours southwest of here, that uh, I happened to be hanging around the Bible department, stepped out of the Bible department, and a really cute blonde girl um, who's sitting over here who I've been married to for 22 years uh, happened to be coming out. She's an older woman by uh, almost a year and a month, and uh, she was working at Cedarville. She and I happened to, to bump into each other in the parking lot towards the end of my senior year at Cedarville. And um, I could say that the rest is just history, uh, but I can say that that connection has literally changed the course of my life. Uh, there were places uh, that, that have happened in my, like as an intern or a resident serving in, in Dallas, Texas, that the senior pastor had a friendship with somebody who uh, was a senior pastor that graduated with him in uh, Nassau, Bahamas, that ended up leading to uh, a ministry in our lives that literally has changed my life. There, uh, and uh, when we were in Texas, uh, we would visit, we actually used to, when we lived, I'm sorry, in Southern California, we would come back and visit Cleveland. Cleveland would be, we didn't just come to visit Cleveland, as great as Cleveland is, but uh, we'd visit family that was here in Canal Fulton and Dayton. Uh, and so almost every year we'd fly back in and out of uh, the Cleveland International Airport and uh, Allie's brother attended Grace Church, the church that helped to plant Hope Church. And Long story short, it, it had a huge impact on uh, the, the timing and the transition of our lives that would ultimately lead for us to be here. And now I can, I can look back on that map or that chart and look at the high points. I could also share some really difficult points, uh, uh, a football injury that, that literally shattered what I thought was my identity at that time in my history. And I could talk about other experiences, difficult times, positive times. Uh, and, and I think for some of us, when we look at that life map or that story or hindsight, looking back on it, um, we, we could kind of have the, you know, what's the quote, like happy little accidents kind of mindset, right? Like that, that, that these are just, just, just neat mistakes that, that happen in such a way that they compiled together to, to fit together to, to cause a lifetime of blessing and challenge. But, but I want to celebrate with you this morning that I see something very different in my story, and I hope you see it in yours, and that is that you get to see the mighty right hand of God at work in the intimate, mundane details of your life. Can you say amen with me, a few of you at least? Like, that, that you get to look back on it, and it's not just a happy little accident that we try to make nice but instead, what it chooses it is, is that we actually get to look back and we get to see that, that God's mighty hand was fulfilling his, we use this term theologically, his sovereign purpose in and through and for us on his behalf to bring himself glory and honor. 
This morning, we're gonna talk about one of those times. I've given you permission in this series to ask questions about Christmas. What's weird about Christmas? Why are we always talking about this little town of Bethlehem? What's the big deal about little Bethlehem? Uh, Other questions that have plagued some of us, I've heard you ask them, like, why in the world would there be no room in the Bethlehem Hilton for baby Jesus, right? Uh, A a question that's common. What's the right response when when someone understands that he's the king of kings? What's the right response? These are questions that we're going to wrestle with together as we study God's word today. And I'm sure that for many of you, you have lots and lots of questions um, that surround Christmas, but we're going to focus in on the where of Christmas, especially the advent, the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I have enjoyed this study so much. I hope that you enjoy the bits and pieces that that weave together that, that are actually going to help us to understand the mission. It's funny that we use the term, if you've ever done that charting thing that I was telling you about, we use the term life map sometimes. And what we can do when we look backwards is we can see how God's mighty handiwork, if Philippians 1.6 is true, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus, that we actually get to see the master's handiwork as it's unveiled in our lives through our history. We also get to anticipate and guess where he's leading us in the next steps of our life. But, but in the bottom line of all of that is we get to find ourselves seeing that our God understands the right time and place to do exactly what he intends to do. Uh, I'm the son of a real estate agent, and I understand the phrase location, 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 right? Uh, that, that this location, Bethlehem, is going to be something as we study it together today, That's going to help us, I think, to really understand the gift of Christ. When we study Bethlehem, we're going to understand the setting of this incredible time in history, and we're going to be encouraged. Uh, I appreciate um, a book written by Lee Strobel, who is an investigative journalist who was an outspoken at one time in his life atheist. He um, he, he um, in the beginning of his uh, understanding of his relationship with Christ, it began through his investigative journalism. He was working in Chicago, and he had tough questions about faith, and he approached some rules that I think were helpful uh, for him as he was seeking the Lord. And what I believe is those who seek the Lord diligently and deliberately they find him. I believe that. I believe that he desires for us to find um, the truth about him. And so one of the, the rules that he used as an investigative journalist was to test all of the elements of a story that can be tested. And this morning, I want to remind you as we're going through this Why Christmas series that we want to ask ourselves um, a simple set of questions Uh, First, it's to be inquisitive, to ask ourselves questions of the text, and when we see the biblical story, to be informed, to do the time, to do the research, to understand the truth that's been communicated, and then be intentional. That step's really important for us. What is God saying to us about himself or about ourselves, and what does he expect of us when we obey him? If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 2. Uh, we're going to begin in verse 1, a familiar passage of Scripture. For some, uh, we're going to unpack some of these details. It says this in Luke chapter 2, verse 1. It says, In those days, 
a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Uh, some of you look at those in those days. And you say, Luke, you're being a little vague here. Uh, you're not being very specific. And uh, next week, we're going to talk about that, the win of Christmas and how it fits together in God's divine sovereign plan uh, for his redemptive plan and for creation and for his people. Um, so we're not going to focus in on the when those days were, but I want you to uh, notice this, um, this movement that happens. The text goes on to say, a degree, decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. That brings up a question for some of us. How could all the world, well, this would have been the known world at that time or the the world that was directly impacted by Caesar. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Uh, I want to take a minute and just recognize the, what this journey would have taken. It was about 90 miles, some estimate, that it would have taken about two days to four days. Um, uh, we, we guessed that Mary would have been in her third trimester uh, of, of uh, pregnancy. Um, now, you guys know, um, like for those of us who've never um, had a baby before, we cannot relate to the pain that goes to it. But you know what Carol Burnett used to say? Uh, she said, the closest thing to um, pregnancy is like taking your lower lip and pulling it over your forehead. Okay, uh, the, it's, it's a painful process. And so uh, you can imagine what the roads would have been like. She wasn't traveling in the Lincoln town car uh, these, these so many miles. But this journey would have been difficult. But I also want you to catch something about Joseph. And this is valuable for me is that it's important to understand Joseph as a carpenter, a tradesman, um, but also as a person, I think it's helpful for us to think of him as a, a contractor, somebody who builds, wasn't just building trinkets, but he's building homes. And, and what this journey required for Joseph would be that he had to leave behind the tools of his trade, the things that would have been the source of his livelihood and consistent, he's, he's now what I would say if I was his friend, recklessly obeying God's plan for him. So the geography for Joseph came at a cost. For Mary, it came at a great personal sacrifice. And it says here that, um, that they made it to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of, this is Joseph, was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So uh, on the surface, those of us who know this story, we know it was about taxes. It's always about taxes, isn't it? Uh, so here, this is about making sure that they get, uh, that Caesar gets from the people that are in his, under his authority, they give him what he believed he deserved. But beyond this, I think it's about us watching the mighty handiwork of God fulfill his promises you see, Bethlehem had a unique place in biblical history. We first see Bethlehem uh, mentioned as the place where J Jacob's wife, Rachel, died and where she was buried. Bethlehem, Bethlehem was known as the city of David. Uh, this is where David's family home was, where he was anointed to be king. Um, but this was also prophesied to be the birthplace of the Messiah. I want you to just enjoy the declaration of Micah chapter 5, verse 2. It says this about Bethlehem, but you, 
O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Many of us believe that this would have been the text or something comparable to this that would have led those kings to come seek the king of Israel that was born. So Bethlehem has a unique place in biblical history. It also was a very special place for a very nuanced part of a tradition and part of the Jewish culture that was there. And this was a place where sacrificial lambs were raised. Now, Bethlehem was known as a very fertile place. It was elevated, and so there were vineyards that were there. You notice when you drive in areas around our, this area here, you make it into some regions, and you just notice, oh, there's a ton of wineries in that area. Well, some of that has to do with the climate and also the elevation. Um, this was a place that was known for its vineyards. It was also known for the crops that were grown. The, um, literally, the term uh, Bethlehem means the bread place or the bread basket or the place of bread. Um, and, I, and I love this description. So one, it's a fertile place. It's a place where things are growing and being provided for. It's also a place that we understand that it's described as the house of bread. So here, it's a, a special place in particular, though, for these sacrificial lambs. So livestock was grown there, or was, was raised there, um, for in particular, sacrifice that would have been associated with the Passover. And so, so we get, begin to now understand something, and we're going to unpack this a little bit, that these, she, these shepherds that were in the fields at night, uh, you know, any of you work a graveyard shift like I have? I want to see, seriously, have any of you done this? Um, you know you can like only do that so long and like survive, right? Uh, or you have to sleep all day long, right? You do the graveyard shift for a while uh, and then you either sleep all day and have no friends, right? Uh, or you adjust. Your, so, so there's a weird situation happening here where we have shepherds whose job it is to care for sheep. Uh, they're out at night and you're, you're asking yourself the question, well, why in the world would they be doing that? Uh, and they, they say that historically there were a few times where shepherds would be out at night. Um, and this happened to be, they call it the lambing season. Uh, and the lambing season would mean that you take all those sheep that you have usually at night in your barn to avoid the lions and tigers and bears, right? Or whatever it is that's uh, the predators that would take out your sheep. You, you take those animals um, that are usually inside, but because they're at this time period where the, it's the birthing season, you need to give them the space to do this. And so it, it meant at times that they would be required to be outside amongst those predators that could cause great harm. And here what happens in this description is that these individuals, some have described as priestly shepherds because of the fact that they're caring for what would be ultimately the sacrifice, these lambs that would be sacrificed during the Passover feast that they're helping to protect and to raise and to care for them because they would need to be perfect blemishless lamb. They would be, they would not need, they would need to be avoiding being damaged or harmed in any way. And so now we've got this description of these individuals who already have in their mind an image of a sacrifice that's coming on the horizon. They're caring for sheep 
And then what we know is that God in his infinite timing and wisdom, his, his perfect plan is going to give us what we know of is the Lamb of God, as John said it, who takes away the sins of the world. And I say, amen. amen. I find myself in awe of his goodness. I also recognize when we describe this as the place where bread was grown, literally the, the term Bethlehem means house of bread, um, you, guys, you guys understand that like spaghetti blownies, did I say that right? Some of you are like, I'm Italian. Come on, Sean, what are you doing? Uh, you look at Brussels sprouts or um, you think of uh, hamburgers. Uh, and these are things that come from Bologna, Italy or from Brussels, uh, from Hamburg, Germany. You understand that there's a place and a thing that comes from that place. And here, what I want to celebrate is this place that was known as the bread basket of that part of the world on a trade route would be the place where that man, the Lord Jesus, would call himself the bread of life, right? That, that he would understand uh, what it means for us to be saved through the breaking of the body, like Mark just walked us through, the, the broken lamb of God. And so now we start to begin to understand just glimpses of the intentionality that God had in this particular geographical region that for me, when I study it, I'll just tell you what it does inside of me is it just makes me say, Lord, thank you. Thank you for, for helping me to understand. There were other derogatory statements that would mention about Bethlehem, about it being small and insignificant, uh, not, not a place of great significance, even though it had this great heritage. And now what God's going to choose to do is to take that particular place because the God that you and I worship, he knows the right time and place to do exactly what he intends to do. I'm going to say that again. God knows the right time and place to do exactly what he intends to do. I want to make sure before we leave that concept that as Stacy shared her testimony this morning, that, that for some of us, we're asking God, uh, if we go back to our chart or our map or our, our story, that we're looking at times that were discouraging or frustrating, we're going, God, what are you doing? I don't understand what is happening right now. How in the world could this be connected to your peace? But I just want to remind you, when we talk about the sovereignty of God, that he does exactly what he intends to do to bring himself glory and honor in our lives. And our job, our responsibility is to trust him. That he's strong enough to allow us to pray those prayers of desperation. What's going on? I don't understand this. Why in the world would you send me on this journey that I don't even know what the final resting place is going to be? But at the same time, Lord, I trust you. So do you trust him? Just gonna ask you that this morning. Do you trust him? Do you decide, uh, make decisions in your life? Do you allow yourself to say, Lord, I don't understand where I'm at today, but I trust that you're sovereign and faithful and good. You know our needs. Um, I'm gonna challenge you if you don't, that there's no other place to be than in the care of the king. The, the second thought this morning, the first being, what's the big deal about little Bethlehem? There's a lot to celebrate about God's work that he did through um, that little place. But, but how then, when we see in the story in these next few verses, beginning in verse six, how could there be no room for a king? That question 
is one that's very appropriate for us to ask. And I'm going to suggest to you this morning that that's actually exactly what God wants us to see when we read this. He wants us to be uh, flabbergasted by the fact that, that what, do you, what do you mean? There's no room for the Messiah? There's no place for the king? And I want you to, to catch this. It says, this, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in common swaddling clothes. She laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. I admit, uh, having heard this story many times uh, growing up, that, that often it's easy for me to kind of villainize the, the evil Hilton innkeeper, right? Uh, you know, this guy who sees Mary in her state and is like, no, we don't want you here. It may be helpful for us to understand, though, a bit of a cultural nuance thing that, that would be happening here. And that is, obviously, lots of people are on the move. Um, obviously, there isn't a hundred-bedroom suite Hilton in the little town of Bethlehem. It's, it's hundreds of people that live there, not thousands or a large population. And so, so here, as they enter into this community, this term, the inn, is not a reference in Greek to what we would think of as a place where you pay to stay. Um, that term is used elsewhere in the story of the Good Samaritan, when uh, when there, um, the, the Samaritan helps the man, he pays for him to stay uh, as he's healing and recovering. Uh, that term is actually not used here. This term is, uh, that's referenced here is just the place where you sleep. And, and I'll remind you, some of you may have seen pictures of this, but homes in that time would have been a little bit larger than some of our storage sheds. They often would be two two spaces with a dividing area. And those homes would have had a place that you um, you lived in, that you cooked in, and then they would have had a space that would have been where the, where the animals, uh, when they needed to be inside, would have been inside. And, and so, so this description of no place for him in the inn, it's a little nuanced, but it's helpful for us to understand. We're, we're probably not talking about where, where Joseph and Mary slept at this point, but we're, we're recognizing that the specific detail that we're given is that the Lord Jesus at that moment in history when, when, when we, we get this first introduction to him, that his resting place is in this manger, a place that's designed for animals to be fed. Now, I think there's echoes of this perfect lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I think that that's included in this humble idea but I want you to catch this because it's in the context of Herod the king and his palaces. You remember last week I told you that Herod had hot tubs in his palaces that were on the top of mountains, right? He, he was living in lavish comfort. And here what we get in this description of the Lord Jesus Christ is that he came and was placed strategically, I believe, this is the point this morning, strategically, I believe, in one of the most humble settings that he could possibly be put in for you and I to stand back and say, wow, why would you do that? Why would there be no place for the king? And it's because of the fact that he humbled himself. He himself, we're told, became poor so that you and I might be what? rich. So, so what happened in history? The, 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 the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the, the bread of life that, that is going to be broken for your and my behalf, that, that what we recognize is in its humility. I don't think that there's a villain here. 
I actually think that what I get to see here is something that makes me want to worship him and to say thank you. Lord, thank you. Because you chose to theologically condescend, to come to the humble place, to be allowed to sit in such a place that was um, in many ways the poorest of the poor. But at the same time, what we see is that God knows the right time and place to do exactly what he intends to do. So Emmanuel, God with us, he chose the way of incarnation. He chose the setting, he chose the timing, and it was on purpose and for a purpose. Uh, I want you to notice that this morning, church. I want you to notice that this wasn't an accident uh, I, I want to remind you that God miraculously can do whatever. Remember with Jonah, he was frustrated because he's, the sun's beating down on him and God miraculously provides this sheltered plant. I, I, I believe the God that can use the star or the celestial image to draw the shepherds to the place, he could have handled housing for these guys, right? Th that wasn't the question. He doesn't lack anything. And so what we recognize is he was intentional about choosing this place for a purpose on purpose. And I'll just tell you the image of a king in a manger, it's unforgettable, right? And it's supposed to be unforgettable. He became poor so that we might become rich. I want to read that. In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, it says this, for you know the grace, the undeserved favor of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor so that by his poverty, we might become rich. This just makes me want to worship him all the more. Uh, we, we understand this, uh, this as a profound truth. And I, I think we get to see in the next few verses the right response to God's gift. This is how I believe God desires for you and I to respond when we recognize his provision for us. It says this in verse 8. It says, In the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And so my, my point earlier about the all-nighter is this would not have been uh, the common pattern for these shepherds. They would have kept them in storage areas that would have been safe and protected. Uh, but instead, there was something that was unique that was happening. The lambing season was afoot. And it, here it says, And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. We understand this as being great awe. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all of the people. So here, these individuals that, that were known, you know, we know them as shepherds here, um, uh, in that day, a, a common shepherd would have uh, been likened to, like we think of as pirates or people who are uh, rough, difficult, challenging, maybe um, the, they're loners. And, um, but there was another priestly class of shepherds that were those who, what we see here in the text is probably this other group of people because they know right where to go. Uh, we're not given direction as to where they're supposed to, to go by the angel um, but what we're guessing here is that these individuals that were out caring for the sheep uh, were individuals that knew the truth of the scripture, that they understood where to go. Probably that Micah passage was one of those things. And so then we pick up now in verse 11. It says, for unto you 
is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you that you will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. What, what I just see here is just see the intentionality of it. And God, God's calling a shot. He's connecting this together with the, the greater story. So, so this special time was understood. Um, and I think that it's important for us to catch that obedience is easy um, when it's accompanied with informed belief. I, I also want to recognize this morning that our faith does not have to be blind. Uh, I mentioned earlier about Lee Strobel. And for some of us, when we ask deep questions about this ancient text, like how can we trust this? What is, what is it about these ancient truths that allow people to literally uh, decide that they're going to make decisions about their day-to-day -day lives because of it? And for some, it comes along with it an ounce of skepticism. Can we really trust this? And I, and I think that this is hard. And I want to hit this. We're going to talk a little bit more about it next week. But I want to recognize that, that this time of year, we talk a lot about believing in something that we don't really believe in. Uh, we, we talk about the traditions that surround Christmas and St. Nick and all these, these details. And we, we believe them and we just kind of work through this like, oh, as long as I have enough faith, I'll get what I want, right? Or as long as I have enough, I, I like this tradition, it's great, we're going to. And I want us to just recognize that that is the opposite of what we're being challenged to do through our understanding of Christ. That, that we can take great strength in understanding what history has proven about Christ uh, first, first support for that as I allow my deep questions kind of press into this. Did this really happen? Well, you know that the testimony of the eyewitnesses that were there at that time, that they were willing to die for their faith. I appreciate what Dr. Harry Habernus says, author of the book, The Historical Jesus. He says, 39 ancient historical sources corroborate more than 100 facts concerning Jesus' life, his teachings, the crucifixion and the resurrection. Seven secular sources and several early creeds concern the deity of Christ, the doctrine of, um, and they were a part of that from the very earliest time of history. I think it's also helpful for us to understand that historians corroborate the truth. And that, that um, Australian archaeologist Clifford Wilson says, those who know the facts now recognize that the New Testament must be accepted as a remarkably accurate source book. Um, next week, we're going to talk about archaeology a little bit. And, and for some of us, we say, we always think about faith being in conflict with science. Um, but what we've seen historically, there have been times when, when that was thought to be the case and then there'd be a, a geographical or historical finding that just um, allows us to recognize, well, the, the Bible got this right from the very beginning. So the, the science of archaeology, when we ask hard questions, um, it has time and time and time again reinforced what God's word teaches us. So I, I want to remind you of this when we talk about truth that science is not in conflict with truth, but in many ways, good observation of, special, of natural revelation in our creation allows us to stand back and say, God, praise you. We praise you because you are a promise-keeping God. I could go into details. There's not time for it. Um, but I just want to celebrate with you the fact that my God knows the right time in place to do exactly 
what he intends to do. I want to close with this image, and this fits within our series in a way that was very encouraging to me. In the, in the beginning of um, the book, The Case for Christmas, written by Lee Strobel, uh, in his, just that, that early part of a book when he kind of talks about, um, you know, why the book's important or valuable or whatever, he, he gives us this little glimpse into his life map. And, and I want you to catch this story. So he was an atheist. He was, his wife was curious about spiritual things at this point, but he notices this, um, this, he's an investigative journalist uh, with the Chicago Tribune, and um, he would write those feel-good stories. He was in the office on Christmas Eve, and um, actually he had written a story originally about some of the poorest of the poor in Chicago at the time, and one was a story of this, this family, a grandmother and her two daughters who had lost their home in a, in a fire, and, um, and so he, on New Year's Day, slow day, uh, in the office, decided he was going to get a car, go down and visit this family. And, and when he got there, he found out that after he had originally written an article about their plight, that people gave generously. Thousands of dollars were given. They, they had received all this. Now, prior to that, uh, they were so poor that uh, the girls would talk about their one sweater that they had um, to get to school. They'd swap it out halfway on their way to school because they were so cold. And now they have this incredible blessing, this, this, this just kind of everything you could ever want. And, and Lee, Lee sees this and he's overwhelmed by this, the gift. And the woman, uh, the grandmother, um, said this to Lee when he was interviewing her. He says, um, Lee, this is wonderful. This is very good, gesturing towards the largesse of the gifts that she had received. And then she said this, we did nothing to deserve this. And then she says to this atheist uh, beat reporter, investigative journalist, she says, um, this, um, this is not, uh, this is a gift I'm sorry, he said, gesturing towards the largest. We did nothing to deserve this. It is a gift from God. But she added, it is not his greatest gift. No, we celebrate that tomorrow. That is Jesus. To her, this child in the manger was the undeserved gift that meant everything, more than material possessions, more than comfort, more than security. And at that moment, something inside of me, this is Lee writing, something inside of me wanted desperately to know this Jesus. Because in a sense, I saw him in this woman and in her granddaughters. They had peace despite poverty, while I had anxiety despite plenty. They knew the joy of generosity while I only knew the loneliness of ambition. They looked heavenward for hope while I only looked out for myself. They experienced the wonder of the spiritual while I was shackled to the shallowness of the material. And something made me long for what they had or more accurately, that made me long for the one that they knew. Isn't that fantastic? So all of that that I just read, what he's saying is he's like, I just, I wanted to go get a feel-good story and find out what was going on with this family. And in that time period, as an atheist, what I saw in their absence of things and then abundance was a, a, a generosity. And he tells the story of how she gave away, this woman gave away so many things and, and he just found himself in awe because I believe he encountered a true Christ follower. 
And so, so this morning, when we talk about, we're not, we're not talking about gimmicks and clever ways to manipulate people, bait and switch. This isn't a sales pitch. Uh, really, what I want us to be about as a church family are people that have just tasted and seen that the Lord is good, right? That we've recognized that he's not just an option for us. He's the only option for us. Amen? And that what we do then is we, we just get to obey the next right step. So, so yeah, we don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. We don't know what the rest of the story is going to be. None of us do. And if you think you do, buckle up because it's going to probably get messy for you. But what I can tell you is the God that I worship, the God that we sing praises to, the God that we exalt together in the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ is, is that he it does precisely what he means to. That, that he's sovereign, he's in control, he loves you, and he has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And I say to that, amen. Amen. Would you join me in praying that God would speak to us, that he would allow us to apply uh, this truth, especially in times of curiosity or discouragement, fear, frustration. Lord, I pray for that right now. I pray for each of us that you would allow us to recognize the truth that you are a promise-keeping God. I also pray today that we would respond appropriately, that we would understand your goodness and your faithfulness in such a way that others would understand it by the way that we respond to your great faithfulness. Lord, we love you. We thank you and praise you for your goodness. I pray right now that you would draw images uh, of individuals in our lives that you've asked us to pursue right now with your loving kindness. Would you not allow us to ignore them? Uh, Would you allow us to recognize that there's some people who... Uh, while they're surrounded by the lights, don't understand uh, the true reason for that precious Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So I pray that humbly. I also pray, Lord, that as we um, close our time out in worship and we give back to you our tithes and offerings, that we would do so in a manner that's worthy and acceptable to you. Would you bless this time? Would you allow this to continue to be a portion of our worship? We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.